Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Education Hearts and Minds podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Smith, and each episode I interview a teacher, student, parent, or school leader. If you like what we're doing here, please share this show with friends and family, because together we can change the conversation in education. Dr. Mary Crabtree is a seventh grade English language arts teacher in Ohio. She is also one of the most experienced educators in the field today. We talk about how schools and teaching have changed over the last 40 years, about Mary's transition out of and then back into teaching, about involving parents in the teaching process, what it's like to teach middle school, teaching students of vastly different ability levels in the same classroom, the pros and cons of state testing, and much, much more. So without further ado, here is Mary Crabtree. Okay, so Mary Crabtree, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you, Mary. Um, so I know that I will have given you an introduction in the opening to this podcast, a little bit, a very, very quick background. But I was wondering if you could give the quick description in your own words about who you are and what it is that you do as a teacher or as okay. an educator. Sure. Well, my name is um, Mary Crabtree, and um, I am a teacher. I teach uh, seventh grade language arts, which includes reading, writing, grammar, spelling, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I teach at a public school in Ohio, and um, I have about 100 students on average each year. So my classes are about uh, 60 minutes long, and I teach four of them every day. So approximately 25 kids per class. Okay. And what you said you're in Ohio. Uh, yes. Is an which is an exciting state in, in many different ways. I <laughs> live there. <laughs> so, um, but where in Ohio are you actually? Um, well, I teach in a, what we would consider to be a suburban uh, rural kind of combination school district in um, Medina County, Ohio, which is about halfway between Cleveland and Columbus. And um, you said it's you said it's a combination of suburban and rural. What does that mean? And is is your school in one of those, or it still sort of straddles that those two? Um, that's a really good question. We're what what my community is considered a bedroom community for um, Cleveland because the majority of the people who live there uh, commute to Cleveland to work. Um, so um, we have a lot of developments, you know, um, where the people live, but we also are a very um, farm-centered community as well. Some of these new developments that have come in have taken over farmland, but we still have a lot of farmland and our school district, actually our schools, are on one central campus in the middle of the country. So um, we have sort of straddled that line between very, very uh, rural thinking and also the more urban, suburban kind of um, living that people do. So do you get, so you get a mix of students then? Absolutely. Um, majority of our population are white middle-class kids, um, but we do have um, probably about 3% African-American, um, Overall, our total minority percentage is around 7%. When it comes to the issue of poverty, we're right around um, straddling the line between 25 and 20% 20 of poverty. We have uh, um, the way that our school district is set up. We have a group of, of students who come from low-income housing development area um, in our county. And so we have around 23 to 25% of kids in poverty across the district every year. So, so I would probably call that relatively low poverty and relatively low minority, which would you- Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Compared to, compared to nationwide. Oh. Uh, definitely. Yes, I think that in my mind, just thinking about where I've taught previously and um, you know what I know about school districts and others I've visited, we have a relatively high income base. Um, I'm sure our median income is quite high and our students are of privilege for the most part. Yeah, so I wanna actually get into this a little bit more because one of the reasons why I was 
excited to have you on this podcast is I know you have been a teacher for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm actually not, I'm not sure for exactly for how long, um, but I, I know that you've been around. I know that you've taught for a while. So, so actually, let me just ask, when did you, can I, may I ask when you started teaching? Sure. Um, I've been teaching for a long time. I taught um, for a couple of years when I first graduated from college in Kansas in a very rural community. And then I moved to Ohio and I I left teaching in the formal sense of teaching and went to work for a nonprofit for many years. And then I returned to public school where I've been now for about 20 years. So while I haven't been um, what you would call teaching in the formal sense my whole career, in one way or another, I guess I've been teaching Others, (laughs) Others, <laughs> helping others learn. Um, my whole career. So, so I'm uh, now. I'm curious about this part too. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> know this part about you that you you left teaching for a while, and then was it like for uh, ten years? Uh, about years? about twenty years. Twenty uh, twenty years. Yeah, I worked for. Ahead. Yeah, I worked for a nonprofit primarily, um, a community action aid, uh, Wayne Medina which is a community action agency. And and most community action agencies oversee, well, all of them oversee um, uh, programs that serve people in poverty. But the one I worked for, my primary responsibility was the Head Start program. So while I wasn't actually um, teaching, I was responsible for the education of young children and their families. So I was still in education, just not in public education. And were you were you working with kids directly at that point, or were you more removed? Um, for a while, I was doing what we would consider to be like social work, where I worked with yeah. the families of the young children, and then I moved into a more administrative role, where I would be, I guess, what people would probably compare it to would be like a principal position, where I oversaw the staff who worked with the children and families in the center. Were you like the, the executive director, or? Oh, no, no, it would be more of a, like a site supervisor. Site supervisor. Okay. So Mm -hmm. a large enough nonprofit that, can I ask you what the, actually, what what was the name of it? Community Action Wayne Medina's. Wayne, yeah. And then what brought you, okay, so then I'm I'm actually curious about two things now. Uh, One is what, what brought you into that, got you into that world with the nonprofit? And then what brought you back into teaching? Well, it's sort of just a weird twist and turn, actually. Um, I, I was, when I moved to Ohio, I substituted and couldn't find a permanent job and, and um, needed some benefits. So I went to work. Um, well, actually, I wanted to get benefits. And so I was subbing and I decided to get my master's degree thinking it would make me more employable. I was young and foolish. And um, <laughs> I did get a master's degree. Um, I worked as a graduate assistant at the University of Akron and got my master's degree in elementary education. And um, then I went to work for a preschool um, and taught preschool for a couple of years. And I met someone who um, works for Community Action Wayne Medina and recruited me there. Um, and that's how I got there. I mean, basically, I didn't have benefits at the preschool. Community Action Wayne Medina offered me better wages and benefits. Um, so it was a, and I was a single mom. It was a good move for me. Um, and um, I just really enjoyed the work. I, um, I enjoyed the work with children and families. I really believed in the Head Start model of, of we don't educate just the child, you know, the, the, that the families families are the first and best educator of their children. And, and I just really like the whole approach to the whole family being involved in education of the child and helping people learn about how to best meet the needs of their children. And it was just really a, the kind of approach I liked. And as an educator in my mind, always, you know, even if I wasn't officially teaching, I always felt like I was teaching in a way, um, you know, I always kind of had that teacher bent. So in a way you like, you left teaching, but didn't really leave teaching. Right. I guess I always just felt like a teacher, even when I wasn't officially teaching, I was always finding ways to help people learn. And, and so, um, you know, that's, that's how that happened. And then when I was at Community Action Wayne Medina, I kind of moved up through the ranks and I ended up there as human resource director. Um, the job just wasn't a good fit for me. And I had a friend who worked in a public school and, 
encouraged me to apply there, which is where I am now. I did it. Everything fell into place and I've been here for 20 years. <laughs> did you find, did you find anything that was difficult about the transition back into the classroom or was it pretty natural just to go back in? Um, that's a good question. You know, for me, I guess I would say no. I absolutely felt it was a real natural and it was a real natural and very um, organic, organic move for me. I didn't feel like there was anything. Um, it, it was the right time. It was the right thing at the right time. And um, there was nothing about it that felt difficult. So everything just sort of, it, it flowed naturally. For yeah, like I said, it was a very organic experience. I am. Um, it, it was just, like I said, it was just the right time. I had children of my own and they were grown by this time above the age level of the kids I was teaching. I had experienced them growing through that process. I think from parenting them, it kind of helped me understand the kids I was teaching. I don't know. It just all, it all was a, um, it was just seemed so natural to me. Yeah. So, and, and you just mentioned having kids and, and, learning from being a parent a, a little bit more about a being a teacher. And I'm curious about this because I have, I'm someone who's been a teacher and I don't have kids. <laughs> <laughs> and so I there are lots of those too. <laughs> right. And there are many of those actually. And it's, it's kind of a, a mistake to think that we don't exist, but right. I'm curious though about what, what that parent teacher like learning from the two different sides dynamic is like can you can you tell me more about that because i don't know sure i think um i mean for me and i i would never say that you have to be a parent to be a good teacher i don't i don't think that's true i mean i know i have friends who are phenomenal teachers and have never been parents so i don't i don't think that's true i really do think that it is very um, teaching is a very personal thing for each person who does it. And I think that your role as a teacher is defined by who you are as a human. So I, I don't want to say that, you know, being a parent is an advantage. Um, for me, it was, but that doesn't mean it would be for everyone. Um, I think for me, it helped me to build a sense of empathy that I didn't previously have. Um, and I will say this because, you know, when I was very young when I first started teaching and then I had children and I realized how difficult it is to be a parent and have a job. Parents of the families as well as for the, for the kids. Right. I think that's where I didn't have a sense of understanding. Like I was always, I always loved children and could empathize with them and understand them and have patience for them and all of that. But it was when I became a parent that I began to understand the difficulty and the balance of how a teacher isn't just a teacher of a child. They're also a teacher of parents. Right. And I, I think even more so today than it was when I was younger, I find myself often, and I'm going to say this in air quotes because you can't see me. It's, it's a podcast. Um, I, I find myself in air quotes, parenting parents. And by that, I simply mean that I have had experiences that many of my parents haven't had, my kids' parents haven't had. And so I'm able to say, you know, it's going to be okay. Right. This is like, I, I teach adolescents. I teach 13-year-olds. This is a difficult time in life for parents. <laughs> do, you, do you find that that comes more because, I mean, you, you do have more than two decades of experience in the classroom at this point. So is that, is that a thing that you feel like a, a first or even a fifth year teacher would be doing? Or is it something that comes with, with Mary Crabtree level of teaching and education experience? I think that I know young teachers who do it. I mean, new teachers, I won't call them young, new teachers who do it um, well. And I think that there are experienced te teachers who don't do it as well. Yeah. I really do think it's an individual thing. I, I think, like I said, it comes from your, for me personally, it comes from my experiences and my understanding of how 
the role of a parent. But I will, I want to very clearly say that I have a, a, a wonderful colleague and friend at school who has no parent, no children. He has parents, he has no children. And, and he has a very um, good, he has an incredible grasp of parenting, understanding parenting, and does a fantastic job of talking to parents about helping their kids at home and setting boundaries and all the kinds of things that I talk to parents about because of my experiences. But he has a very good understanding of that and has never been a parent ever. And, and when you say talking to parents about, what, I, I want to know more about what, what are the circumstances under which is, is that just at parent-teacher conferences or this at um, other instances? When, when are you talking to and in what ways are you communicating with parents? Well, of course, it's at conferences, but it's it's kind of an ongoing thing. Um, parents of adolescents, which is the grade I, grades I teach, experience difficulties when kids reach this age. You know, kids are push pulling. I call it. They're they're pushing their parents away, trying to be independent, and then pulling them back because they need something. And the parents are in, and the kids are in a perpetual state of confusion you, you about middle school, seventh grade. Yeah, seventh yeah. grade. So 12, 13, 14. Yeah. And um, they're both in a perpetual state of confusion. And the, this, the kids, the children are not always very nice. Um, and the parents are, are, relatively frustrated with this because it seems to happen overnight. And so um, parents often talk about that. You know, I will say to them, you know, they'll, they'll talk about, it or they'll share with me. I'm really frustrated. They're not doing their work. I don't know how to do this. They won't communicate with me because, you know, they may call me or they may communicate by email because their students' grades are not what they think they should be, or they're missing some assignments or whatever. And and it's new to them. This has never happened before, this child's. And, you know, so we end up talking about, you know, that type of thing. Well, what can I do at home? And, you know, all those sorts of things. So it is that, listen, this isn't the end of the world. It's a phase, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm talking parents off a ledge, let's call it that, um, in that way. And I guess, I guess I can, I feel like comfortable doing that for a couple of reasons. One, because I've been through it myself as a parent, but also because I've taught this grade level for so many years right. that I've, I've seen kids go through this and, and make it through and be okay. Right. You know, for the most part, they're going to be okay. And um, I think that's, you know, when I say to parents, well, you know, okay, so they're really mean to you, but you know what, they're really nice to their friends at school. And they're very polite to me. You know, when you can help parents see that there's two sides to their kids, it's all of that sort of thing. Everybody needs a little reassurance. I'm, I'm guessing that Mary, that Mary Crabtree has had the experience of being told by a parent that, that a very, like a quieter kid in your class is actually very outgoing or some opposite thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, um, oftentimes parents describe their kids as just horrific little hellions at home. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, they're so wonderful here. Or I will, you know, say at a conference or on a phone call or whatever, I'll say, well, you know, they're always so polite and they ask questions and they're, they participate in class and they're so kind to their friends and there will be nothing, no response from the parents. And I'll, you know, if we're talking on the phone, are you there? Well, yes, yeah. I'm shocked because when they come home they're you know, and they describe this, this horrible child. And I, I say, well, you know, home is a safe place. They can be that way at home because they know it's unconditionally loved. They're unconditionally loved. And that's where they can let their guard down. I mean, there's a lot of things <clears throat> that when you're a teacher and you've been doing it for a long period of time and you work to build relationship with kids and parents, because that matters, that you begin to understand parents just need to know they're doing okay. As much as, and that's as important really, as kids need that relationship with you. I'm curious about two things here. They're, they're, they're in kind of a different direction. So I'll, just, I'll ask you about both of them. The first one is that, you know, you said that with parents and with, with these kids, these seventh graders, that 
you need to uh, sometimes talking down a ledge for the words you use. <laughs> uh, but but also at the same time, like a lot happens in middle school, um, and like broadly speaking, we 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 kind of know that. That sometimes this can be a time when kids lose interest in certain academic subjects like math um, or um, maybe other interests turn on or whatever. So, so I, the question is, how do you balance that talking them down off of a ledge with, yes, but we also want to keep them going in that direction of um, reaching their potential? Well, I think that... Um... You know, I never tell them, like, for example, the, the biggest obstacle we always face in seventh grade is, is kids get there and it's different and um, they all of a sudden just decide to stop doing their work, you know, and, and it may be kids who've been A students their whole lives and always done their work and now all of a sudden they have so much more freedom than they did when they left elementary school and now they're switching teachers and they don't have one person keeping track of everything anymore. And their parents are like, well, now you're older, you should have some freedom. So all of a sudden they have no seatbelt, it seems to them. And they, a, a lot of them, many of them just cut loose in the sense that, well, you know, I don't really have a schedule and nobody's really checking on me. And so homework, eh, who cares? Or just work in general, who cares? You know, and of course our kids also, our seventh graders also get their own computer for use at school and much of the work that they do is online. So there's the whole issue of gaming online and managing their time with all of that. So we do see kids sort of fall off the cliff sometimes in the beginning and we have to pull them back. So when their parents are really, really losing it about that, you know, part of what we do say to them is, okay, you stay on top of it, but recognize this is a phase. We're going to bring him back. And right. that's what I mean by talking them off the ledge. So yeah. it's not, it's not like we're letting those kids get away with it. We're not saying that it's that you're going to stay on top of it together. We're going to, we're going to partner together and get these kids back. We're bringing them back in, but right but it's not the end of the world. We're not, nobody's going to die here. It's going to be okay. We're going to bring it back. And we do, we typically always do. Um, and I say we, because it is a partnership between the parents and the teachers, we have to work together. And um, the kids typically always find their way back. And, you know, yes, they may have always been a math whiz and all of a sudden they discover, I don't know, maybe they discover Spanish and all of a sudden now that's their thing. And so math is okay, but yeah. Spanish is their thing now. And parents learn to make that adjustment. Um, another thing that, you know, we find now um, a gr to a great extent is, um, you know, they're exploring their sexuality. We have students in seventh grade who identify who identified as girls their whole life and now are identifying as they them with a different with a fairly innocuous non-gendered name um, and boys the same way um, some of them are starting to identify as gay uh, transgender lesbians um, or you know somewhere in the lgbtq community um, and that may be that they do that for six months or it may be that that's their whole identity now moving forward. So all of that happens right now in, in, I mean, it's, this is where it really blossoms. Um, and so it is definitely a time of huge transition in learning, in discovering who they are in, in, um, in everything. And so we, as teachers and as, you know, helping the children understand themselves and being understanding of that of that process but also helping parents understand how to manage that it's all a big it, it's it's not just teaching anymore it's just not so it sounds like even though mary crabtree is a seventh grade english language arts teacher <laughs> she is doing a lot more than english language arts academics absolutely and there is no teacher that isn't Right. You know, I, I mean, I don't know of any who are in, in my school every day, all day. You know, I had a student who was a girl's name and a girl um, up until the last week of the first quarter. And then they came to me and said they have now a, a very 
middle of the road name, could be boy name, could be girl name, and identifies as they. This is in one day said, I'd like you to call me Nikki was the name and mm -hmm. I identify as they. And I said, okay, that I, I can do that, but I want you to know that I might make mistakes for a while because I, 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 t I'm going to try. I am to value that. And I do value that, but for a while, I, I I'm going to, it's going to take me a while to see you. So if I call you by your other name, just correct me yeah. in the moment and I'll get there. Okay. Yeah. And, and they were fine with that. And yeah. now I'm, I'm good. I've got it. <laughs> you had said, and you had said earlier that maybe in some cases it, it's, it's a very permanent, this is, this is the identity. And in some other cases it might be more temporary, but either yeah. you, you, you respect it. Yeah. I, I mean, there was a student last year who was a seventh grader who identified with a, a, a male gender name and asked to be called by male pronouns and this year has gone back to her female name and uses female gender pronouns yeah. yeah and and so you know we just have to be ready to accommodate that and not make a big deal out of it and roll with it because it is something that at this point in their lives they're experimenting with or maybe not even experimenting with ex experiencing you know, and it, the experience may last or it may not. Yeah. And it, and it makes sense because this is a time, seventh grade, middle school, when a lot of this exploration of identities is happening, right? Right. And they're going through puberty, yeah. um, you know, and so all of this is where, you know, they are. And this is when they start, um, again, air quotes, dating, as they call it. They don't really date, but they do sometimes like go to the movies, like their parents will pick one up and they'll go to the movies together or they'll go out to eat together, you know, that kind of thing. So it is a sort of dating, yeah. um, but not, not like a boy picks up a girl and goes out on a date, that kind of dating. Right. But, but they do sort of, they call it dating. I'm going to call it that because that's what they call it. So they do start to have that boyfriend official boyfriend <laughs> girlfriend thing there are breakups that happen um in in seventh and eighth grade so um you know that this is when that happens so it's normal that the, if they were going to have a gender identity issue um you know that they were going to to explore that or experience that that this would be when it would happen yeah or the first stages of i guess i should say yeah yeah, this this is the time when you're then they're first exploring that. And I like the term first stages. Um, I wanted to go back to the to the parents and the families too, though. So you, you were talking how important it is to build these relationships with parents and families to you said parent the parents or teach the parents. Sometimes I'm curious about what you do with parents who are reluctant to make those connections um you just don't give up um and and certainly i'm not a i don't have a hundred percent success rate yeah. i mean there have been times where um I, I won't say it happens often but there have been a few times in my career where i just haven't for whatever reason the parents and i just haven't connected um they haven't agreed with my approach or, um, you know, we just haven't been able to, to get through the difficulties um, that they're experiencing or that their child's experiencing. And so it hasn't ended up being something that's been what I would call a productive relationship. I, I would never characterize any relationship I have with a parent as antagonistic in any way. It's just that I recognize we're not on the same page. And so I'll be pleasant and informative, but I probably am not able to help them or assist them in any way that's going to move them forward. Um, that maybe there's somebody else, you know, that they can relate to better that can do that. And certainly with, you know, in a, in a junior high setting, like I work, they would have four, at least three other teachers, four or five sometimes that they might find someone who has, they do have a better relationship with. And then what I do with that is just work through that teacher. Yeah. 
And do you do you also find, or have you had examples of a parent or family that was reluctant at first, or but but over time you were able to build more of a connection with them from your persistence? Oh yeah, and I think it's that way with kids too. Yeah. You know, like in, initially you you meet a kid and and there's some reluctance for some reason or another. Maybe you just get off to a bad start, or you don't recognize what they're you know, something you say or something just doesn't sit well with them, or they say they approach something and and you misread it or whatever, you know how it is. Relationships aren't perfect. And so um, you just, yeah, absolutely. You can just misread something, mishear something, misinterpret it, whatever. And you get that it's, you know, maybe an itchy kind of sensation with that person, but you just don't quit. You know, you, I mean, I'm really straightforward with people and I'll just say, oh, you know, it doesn't sound like we, we didn't get off to a great start. What, what do we need to do to fix this? You know, or did I rub you the wrong way? I mean, I have no problem admitting that I messed it up. Right. And, and what can I do? What, what do you need from me? You know, I, I'm more than willing to say it's me. So what, what do I need to do so we can work together better? What, what's, I, a, I was just <laughs> what's important is that teacher's parent student relationship. Right. I mean, I, I need the parents yeah. and, and um, I always say to the parents, like you're, I, I, you're the expert. And I, I just feel like they're sharing their kids with me for a year. And I'm grateful for that. You know, I'm grateful that they're trusting me with their kids and that they're partnering with me for that year, because that's going to make the learning better. So I, I really do approach it that way with them. It's, it's, you know, thanks for sharing your kid with me because, and, and your time with me, because I need that in order to be a good teacher. I need that from you. And I think that that's, you know, that when they recognize that I value them, which I really do, it's not just me saying that it's true, then it's easier for them to understand, Hey, I value you. And, and, and I want you to, you know, I'm coming to you and asking you to help me too. I'm not the expert in the room. Together, we're going to get this done. That is wonderful. So I think we're going to take a little break. And okay. <laughs> then we're going to come back. And I want to talk more about your long-term trajectory. In okay. All right. As you said, you, you were in teaching for, you were in teaching, left for a while, and then came back for a long time as well. Um, so I'm actually just curious about how have you seen schools, education, teaching change uh, over that time? Wow, um, a lot. Uh, well, you know, like when I first started teaching, of course, that was in the early 80s. Um, that, you know, it was the way it was the old fashioned way you teach. There weren't any testing, state testing requirements and all of that sort of thing. You know, we, we taught, I taught fourth grade back then. And <clears throat> The fourth grade teacher taught everything. I taught math and science and social studies and reading, writing. You know, we didn't call it language arts then. We called it reading and writing and English, which was grammar and that sort of thing. And um, I taught art because I taught at a, um, a little tiny school and I taught art as well. And um, I had playground duty and lunch duty. And I mean, you know, I, it, was, it, it was that holistic, almost country school-like teaching. But um, <clears throat> and you said you, you were in Kansas at this point. Yes. Okay. You said rural and, Kansas, so where? Yeah, it was very rural. Um, the school that I taught at was the the district was La Crosse, okay. um, Kansas, and it's um right. It's pretty much in central Kansas, just south of Hayes, Kansas. Right. So um, it's a it's a small district. But, yeah. but I but I just um, I think about now what what it was like teaching fourth grade then. And I, I see what fourth graders learn today. And I think, you know, that's what second graders are learning. Now we've pushed the requirements of learning, like the knowledge level of what students need to know down so much, you know, and even like my granddaughters in first grade, and I did teach first grade for a year, um, about 12 years ago. And even just 12 years ago, the year I taught first grade, these kids that are in first grade now are doing things these, the first graders I had who are seniors this year couldn't even have imagined doing. I mean, my, my granddaughter's writing essays. 
Oh. And my first graders were writing sentences. So just the level of requirements of what we require students to do at the various you know, ages is, is amazing to me. And to be honest, <clears throat> I'm not sure it's developmentally appropriate for them. So having, having first graders write essays. Yeah, like, it's, yeah, is it appropriate for them developmentally? You know, I don't know. It could be, I suppose, but I'm not 100% sure, <clears throat> excuse me, that we're pushing our kids to do these things younger and younger and younger. And I'm not 100% sure it's the most effective thing to do. For example, my seventh graders learn algebra in seventh grade. I remember that I learned algebra in ninth grade, um, oh. you know, and of course, that doesn't mean that algebra in seventh grade is a bad thing, but I just wonder, um, you know, are they going to be that much better off? <laughs> is, is it everyone is learning algebra in seventh grade? Or I mean, math tracking is another thing that, that's come up recently or... I mean, I don't, I can't really tell you, but it's, it's the value of X and that sort of stuff. Like yeah. what I learned in, what I learned in ninth grade. Oh, I was, I was asking actually about like, if, if all the kids are learning algebra. Oh yeah, they all are. That's okay. Yeah, so it's that's... a whole, it's, it's every, it's mm -hmm. everyone. It's not, there's a, a select group that are. No, the, the advanced seventh graders go straight to eighth grade math. Huh. They Which just is skip. after algebra one or. Yeah. It's like advanced algebra. Wow. Like, okay. like what I would have done in algebra two when I was in a sophomore in high school. Yeah. And I've, yeah. I've subbed, I've subbed in those classes and I, I, I'm like, yeah, this is what I learned in high school. <laughs> so, do you, so you're talking about how everything has gotten, how the academics have gotten more rigorous. And you also just said push down the grade levels. So you're learning algebra in seventh grade. You're doing things in first grade that you might have been doing much, much late, like writing essays. Mm -hmm. Is this a thing that you, from, from your perspective, that, that seems to have changed very rapidly, or has it been more of a gradual and steady change over um, the early 80s? I would say that probably in the last 10 to 15 years, probably 15 years, I would say, it has changed it, it continually seems to be more rigorous, more quickly. Um, you know, I, th I think it has to do with globalization. When I think about it, when I tie it to like the big picture thinking in terms of, you know, once we started to look at more of a global society instead of just a national society, you know, within our borders and that kind of thing, once technology really took off, and we started to have a world vision, a worldview, which we do, we have a worldview, but 15 years ago, we didn't necessarily have a worldview. Um, I mean, on a local, on a local level. Okay. Yeah. I mean, on a local level. I mean, it's not like at the government level, we didn't have a worldview. We had that for many, many, many years. But I mean, as, a, as just a human person, we didn't, I didn't have a worldview in the sense of how do my students compare to the kids in Norway or China or whatever, like no one talked about that. So when you say world, you mean like, like you perceive or really think about the world and you think you're thinking now about, or someone's thinking now about kids in all over the world. I think everyone does. I yeah. think all of us think of us as world citizens, not necessarily citizens. I mean, I think we think of ourselves as citizens of the US, but let's be real here. We're part of a global society. Yeah. And 15 years ago, we didn't think that way. And do you think that part of that comes from the technology? Absolutely. And internet and that like you can see and interact with? Ab absolutely. I do believe that. I believe that because, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I don't want you to think that I'm, uh, you know, I'm saying, oh, this is doomsday. No, 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 not at all. It's just that because we can see the world so easily, it's at our fingertips. We have become global citizens. And so it matters more how our students perform in the world than how they perform in the United States. It matters more how, um, you know, I mean, it, it just matters more. I, I can't say it any better, I guess, than that. Um, it matters more when um, our, when the, 
experts, <laughs> policymakers, and people like that look at education. They don't just look at it as a, as a thing in the United States. They look at education as a global thing. Are our kids prepared for the global world, the big world that they're going to step into? And I, I don't think we can't do that. I mean, we can't ignore that. And I think that has a lot to do with why education has changed so rapidly. Right. And you, I mean, I, I can go back to, I can go back to the early eighties actually, where we have the, that famous essay, a nation at risk or the, the report or whatever. Mm -hmm. where it's very, if you ever read it, it's very, very concerned with, with those things. Um, with, but, and then it's become more and more so because of the, the internet and the technology. Do you find, and another thing that's, that's obviously happened is there's been a lot more measurement and a lot more data gathering in education. Do you find that like you can, you're aware of that or is that? Oh, uh, you can't not be. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think there is a lot more of that. And I, I don't know that we're actually measuring the right things. Um, and so then th because we're constantly measuring how well do kids do math, how well do they write an essay, whether or not we're me measuring the right things. Um, so then, of course, that also, to my mind, has built that fear. Are we doing the right thing? Is education good enough? And are teachers doing well enough? Are they really educating these kids? And <clears throat> if we're just measuring, can they multiply, divide, you know, I'm simplifying it, of course. Right. Can they write a sentence correctly? Do they know how to? If that's what we're measuring, um, then that's what we should be teaching, period. But I don't think that's really what we want to know. And I don't think that um, policy wonks, policy people, people who are developing these measurements and saying this is what we should measure are really thinking about the big picture. I, I just don't believe that that's happened yet. I think it might, it could, but because I'm an optimist, but at this point, I don't see that as having happened. Look at what it really takes to be successful in the world. You have to be able to collaborate. You have to be able to problem solve. You have to be able to have people skills that allow you to work with a variety of different people. You probably have to know how to understand how to do things and figure out things that you that aren't even invented yet. Uh, jobs that we don't even know about yet are things that the first graders are going to be doing when they get out of high school and maybe college and whatever. So is, is it really fair to measure education based on a reading test or, and isn't it important they can read? Yes. Or are we are we really looking at the right thing? Are these kids resilient? Do they understand stewardship? Can they take care of themselves? <laughs> I mean, these are the things that I wonder in terms of in terms of their success in the future, because for me, all of this technology and everything that's available that I use in my classroom all the time, I didn't have any idea how to do any of that when I graduated from college in 1979. I didn't know, even know a laptop computer would exist. I didn't think we'd ever do a podcast, Jeremy. <laughs> I didn't so, even, wouldn't have. So, so the skills that I have in my toolbox that are valuable to me are not algebra one. And they're not the fact that I scored a really good score in my ACTs or SATs. They are the abilities that I learned to be resilient, to problem solve, to look forward and say, what, what can, to the idea of growth mindset, all of those things, those are the things that are valuable to me now and provide for success. So isn't that important that we recognize that if we're, if we're teachers and we're teaching students those things, but we're not recognizing that that's valuable. Isn't that, isn't there something wrong with all that testing? <laughs> so, so this is, so this is really interesting because what you're saying here is that <clears throat> teaching or, or learning has got to be a lot more than reading and math scores. It is. It absolutely is. There's, if you are struggling with 
reading. And all your teacher does is help you learn reading skills. If they don't help you learn how to overcome your struggles, how to be resilient, how to power through, you know, how to cheer yourself on, how to have those social emotional skills that you need. Like, I don't know yet, but I can do it. If you don't get that somewhere, then when you come up on the next problem, what are you going to do when you don't have the teacher there with you? But you could also use the, the project of learning reading as a way to learn some of those skills. Could you? If all you ever had was the skill that the teacher oh, I, I mean, that was direct to the learning. Um, that's what I'm asking you. Yeah, no, well, I meant, I meant with the teacher's support. Absolutely. With, with the, and, teacher, the, the teacher helps the scaffold. The... Sure. And, and certainly that is part of what teaching is. It's, it's scaffolding. Like, well, you have this, and then you take this, and you build with that. But the complexity of life these days requires more than just that. Yeah. And, and I think that's what is missing in when you mentioned, you know, the, the idea of what's changed. I think that's what's missing in the p- big picture is the recognition of that's what's changed. Life is more complex than just taking a test to show your skills. <laughs> Life is much more complex than that now. Well, it, Life is definitely more complex than, than a couple of tests. I was, do, do you think that you can, you could measure some of those things? Do you think it's a matter of we're not, do you think it's a matter of we're not measuring enough things? Um, or do you think it's more a matter of maybe we should step back from this measuring thing a little bit and find another way to approach education? Or is it a mix? Um. I think that we put too much of an emphasis on the specific subject matter measurements. Yeah. I think, I think there's too much of an emphasis on that. Um, do I think there's a way to measure the softer things, what we call like 21st century skills, organization skills, those kinds of things? Yeah, yeah I, I do think there are ways that kids could demonstrate those. Um, I think that we have to be given time to, to find and develop those ways. And I think that that professionals who are in the field need to be a huge part of that process. Um, you know, things like portfolio building and that t- type of thing would be very good ways for students to see their growth and also to demonstrate for others how they've grown. Um, but I don't know I mean, it's a complex question and I don't know that there's one answer. And I think that's part of the problem is that everyone is looking for an answer and, um, and an answer right now. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I have a hundred students and none of them are the same. (laughs) And when I teach them and I walk around my room to help them, not one single one of them gets the same approach from me 100%. Each one of them gets an individual me for their individual needs. And if that's the case with 100 kids, imagine what it's like to measure that scope across all of our kids. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer. I wish I did. I could be, I could retire forever. I mean, I really, I don't know that I want to retire, but that's not even the point. I guess the, the thing is it's, it's a big question. And since it's such a big question, it's a big answer. And I guess my question for that is, do we have to have an answer? That was what it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, maybe part of the answer is that there is no one answer for, I mean, it sounds like that is definitely a part of the answer. Yeah. Um, there's no magic bullet or magic curriculum or method that you can just plug in. Right. And, you know, we talk a lot in, in our, in our, as professionals about differentiation, you know, like you have to meet the kids where they are and you're, you teach this lesson, but then after you teach the broad lesson, then you have to differentiate for each kid, you know, or groups of kids. Well, for me, 
there's no way to group these kids. They're so different. And maybe I'll have a couple that I can kind of put together and go, you two are kind of on the same page so I can talk to you together and, and you'll be okay. But like, I have kids in my class who are, who are gifted. They are, they are gifted, identified gifted. They have a high IQ so that they are identified as gifted. So they are, you know, that they have that really high level of, of, of cognitive functioning. And then in the same class, I have someone who has a very low IQ in the, in the eighties, maybe, and <clears throat> they're in the same class and I'm teaching them the same lesson at the same time. And then when they are performing the work, that's when the differentiation happens. And I have 25 ish kids in there and individually, I have to get them all to get to their individual need. So gifted kid gets his instruction so that he can stretch as far as he can go. And the student with the very low IQ gets his instruction at his level so that I can bring him up as far as he can go. And there's everyone in between. And yet all of those kids are tested on the same test. I was going to ask that about that. And, and when you say on the same test, are, are you referring to an end of the course exam? The state test, the state, the state test, test that they're yeah. in, in, in a, late April, they're yeah. all tested over the same exact test, same exact material and expected to be quote proficient for seventh graders. Right. So what, and that makes absolutely no sense. And yet at the same time, the state requires me to differentiate for those kids. So <clears throat> the, the whole picture, when you see the whole picture and you look at it, it's rather confusing. And also you say, what? <laughs> when you think about the test. And so I guess for me, I don't think that, I'm, I'm not definitely anti-test in the sense that it does provide me with some data to see what my instruction did over the course of the year. It does let me look back and reflect it doesn't let me change anything for those kids who've already been through the year. Right. But it does let me reflect and, and fine tune my instruction for the upcoming year. So from that level, it's, it's productive. Um, but the reality is for me, it's the day-to-day -day instruction and formative assessment that I do every single day that is the best measure of how these kids are doing and lets me know, okay, what do I need to do with this student to bring that skill where I want it to be. And it's, it's a daily thing. Yeah. And I'm curious too now, you, you, how do you evaluate, how, how do you evaluate or assess students that are uh, this, this different from each other and have it be fair and also respect them as individuals? And it sounds like respect trying to get them to their individual potential. What, how do you handle that? Outside of it. Well, when it comes to assessment, we, always, we have to have common assessments because I, I have standards I have to teach and I have to know where they are in terms of the level of performance on those standards. So they, I do have common assessments that I give to them so that I can see, oh, okay, you're, you're passing that standard. You're good. I know that. And I don't have to reteach you, but you're not passing that standard. So I have to build in some time to make sure I reteach this standard to you and make sure that you understand it. Or next, my standards spiral throughout the course. So I hit them over and over and over again with different materials. Um, so I, when I come to that one again, I need to make sure I have you in a small group so that I can make sure we really target it, we understand it, that kind of thing. So that's how I target the learning in terms of you've met that learning goal or you haven't, and I'm gonna make sure you do. So it but almost it, like, do you, do you have uh, like an individual plan for each student then? Um, uh, essentially, but not written down. Uh, okay, so not written <laughs> down, but you have something systemized or? Yes, I have data tracking on every student and I have charts that I keep and yeah, I track every kid all the time. It's constant. Um, it's, it's pretty labor intensive, but it really does give me a complete picture of where they are. So, and I formatively assess them on a, a couple, three times a week basis. So I know pretty much where they are in terms of how things are going. And when you say formative assessment, what kind of things are you, that, that so, audience, what does that mean? And what are you doing? 
Formative means that I'm seeing, okay, so I want to know, can you answer this question about what we read? And then can you prove that you know that answer by giving me some text evidence to support your answer? That would be an example of seventh grade. So I ask you a question. Um, we're reading a, a non-fiction story right now. And I ask you a question about the character and why he um, didn't give some information to his father in the story. And you answer it just, you know, well, he didn't tell his father because he was worried his father was going to turn in this person to the police. That might be your question, your answer, which is the correct answer. But how am I going to believe that you know that? Well, because in the text, it said, and you find the evidence to support your answer. That's a seventh grade skill. They have to know how to do this. And are they doing so, it written or out loud? or They do it written. Okay. Um, and so that would be a question I would ask them. And they would, during work time, because we have work time, they would, they would answer that question. We would have read the material. They would answer that question. And they would find text evidence to support their answer. So then I review their work. And oftentimes I'm, well, when they're working, I'm walking around the room, you know, answering their questions, or if they're like, I've looked and looked and can't find this, can you help me find a page number to find it? You know, I'll do that sort of thing. And then they write it out and I'll, I'll look over it and I'll give them written feedback. Hey, this is spot on, but this evidence doesn't support your answer, that kind of thing. So it's very much like right on the spot feedback so that they can fine tune their work, that kind of thing. For that would be remedial kind of thing for those kids who don't quite get it. For those kids who are advanced, who really get it, their question may be more of an inference. <laughs> you're differentiating, you're asking or differentiating the question. Yeah. And or um, if I don't differentiate the question because I want to know, can they do this basic skill? This is a basic standard. Then once they've differentiated, my feedback to them might be an, an inferential follow-up question that they would answer. Okay. So you would see it's all based on, and it's very one-on-one. -on -one. And because we do it, I do everything by computer. They use Google Classroom. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's very on the spot, interactive right in the moment. I'm in my computer, they're in their computer. And while they're working on their screen, they see my comments coming to them. Okay. So, oh, so very, very, very technology-based. Yeah. So yeah. And it's right. It's in the moment. You're sending them feedback as they're working on their Absolutely. Computer. And sometimes I'm in person with them because, you know, they're in the classroom, but it can be more efficient yeah. for me to be, if I'm working with someone who's really struggling to also have my computer and be giving feedback to somebody else while this person is slowly typing in their stuff, I can give feedback to four kids who are not having any struggle. At the same right. time, this person is taking their time, getting their information. And, so, and often some of that feedback is an invitation to do a little more, it sounds like. Yeah, it's always another question. Hey, okay, so this, but then what about this? So that's the that's the building of um, that's the building of um, more advanced skills for those kids who need it. And um, it doesn't seem like more work because it's like a conversation. Yeah. And, and sometimes I just ask them, I mean, I don't always do it in writing. Sometimes I can just ask them, oh, hey, this was a great answer. So what do you think about this? And it can just be a conversation, you know, but it's always, it's always um, based on their individual, where they are in the process and, and what their needs are. And like I said, I have, I have a notebook that tracks data on every kid. So I know we're doing this standard and this question's on this standard. And I know what, where every kid in that class is on that standard. So when they're working, I know what I need to do with them. So you can, you can work with the kid, the kids that are maybe need a little more help with that one, with the standard, but also it sounds like also push some of the kids who are meeting that standard and can move, move into a more advanced level. Right. And I don't have to do everybody every time. You know, that it's not like I have to hit every 25 kids every time. There are some kids who are just right on target. And so I'm going to let them for today. Those six kids are just going to be on target and they're okay. But maybe tomorrow when I've given feedback to these kids, those kids are going to get to be my target. You know, you can balance that. So it's, um, it's a definitely, um, it's a, uh, what would we call this? A high energy. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely you're on. You're just on the whole time. You know, there's no downtime. You're just constantly on 
but it's um for me it's it's a it's kind of like intrigue like um you know you're just constantly giving feedback and getting feedback in it and it, it just it's a really nice flow and it's very um it's fun it's fun it's it like sounds a, like you almost get energy from doing yeah like absolutely it's um yeah it's fun it's it's very fun um and you you know i laugh a lot because the kids you know will say funny things or they'll do you know whatever it ends up being very much a relationship building and very um energizing kind of thing and i think the kids enjoy it too which makes it you know good as well and because this is this is english language arts this is mostly about readings they've done in books or stories or yeah we read um fiction mm-hmm. nonfiction, poetry so anything that falls in any of those genres so like right now we're reading a novel we're finishing it up but we have a textbook that has um, all kinds of different things. And we, um, I do, I like to do thematic um, learning. So I start with an essential question, like our essential question we are finishing up is, um, what do, uh, what effects do people have on the environment? That's the essential question. So every reading we've done discusses that in some way or another people's impacts on the environment is that for the year or for no it's just for this quarter we're a little bit we're running over a little bit our next one will be our next essential question will be should we build a home in space so it's just and then all of the reading will be about living in space and and or trips to space or it'll be fiction and nonfiction. we do a lot of ray bradbury i was gonna say i was gonna just identify (laughs) yeah he's he's perfect for us with the kids um we read dark they were in golden eyed and uh so a number of different things so so yeah we just um and then always there's a writing component the kids wrote an essay this past quarter about um do people have a positive or what effect do people have on the environment that was their question it was argumentative essay and so they had to decide if it was positive or negative and then find evidence to support their their argument so you know there's always all of those pieces that fall into place so it's um it's a full it's not just ice in isolation because i don't think that anything that anybody does anymore is one thing in isolation it's a whole constellation of things that go together and talk about a whole constellation of things. Do you are you ever collaborating with other teachers, not just to talk about the students, but on curriculum or um, and yeah. I, I, both with we, maybe other English language arts teachers, but also with the math teacher or the social studies teacher? Yeah, we um our we have a department. Um, our language arts department meets all the time, and we collaborate together with both grade level and with um the hang on with our grade level and then also with um our with our whole department seventh and eighth grade together but um we we do um i have worked with our social studies department a lot because they've been encouraged to do writing and so i work with them to um do a writing unit where they use the same process that we use to teach writing when they have their kids write an essay so that our kids are familiar with the writing process. And then um, we work together to, they use the same rubric, we grade it the same way. And I work with them to grade it and that kind of thing. That way then I can talk to my kids in language arts about their essay. So it's a cross-curricular sort of essay process. So they're using the process of writing that we use, but they're writing about the topic in social studies. So that's an example. And then in um, in science, the scientific process i'm not sure i'm using the word correctly that they use is very much like the um, writing process that we use i mean we use similar terminology so we work together with them to fine tune it so that our terminology of discovery is the same as theirs so you know the kids have common language across the curriculum right so yeah we have done that a lot when i taught sixth grade it was a little bit easier because we I just had one other teacher that I taught with. She taught science and math and I taught social studies and um, language arts. And so we would partner together. And, you know, that was a little easier when you have, you know, one teacher per subject across, you know, and some of like my language arts kids might have two different social studies teachers. 
that can be a little more difficult, but we worked really hard to partner together and make that work. And was that because your, when you were teaching sixth grade, it was like, was it an elementary school? Yes, it was. Okay, it was. So, you do K, so your district does K-6 elementary. Yes. Okay. So seventh grade then is actually, that's their, this is coming near the end of our, of, of our time together, but seventh grade is actually the time when they're making the transition into middle school and the whole multiple classes, multiple teacher. I mean, they had multiple teachers in sixth grade too, but it's, it's a very different feel. And yeah. And actually this year, I believe our sixth grade, it went to departmentalized process, okay. but, but previously we have a true junior high, it's just seventh and eighth grade. But this year, I believe our sixth grade has gone to that, um, that single teacher per subject ma- um, process so that our sixth graders coming up into seventh won't have such a huge transition. It'll be a, helpful with the transition. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we are, we are actually coming to the, the end of our time together here. And I do want to be mindful of, of your time here. <laughs> but was there anything else that you wanted to talk about or say or anything we didn't touch on or any advice you wanted to give for, for teachers? <laughs> uh, well, you know, the reality is no matter what the challenges are, I will always say that this is, it's the best job ever. I absolutely love teaching. I've done other things. And um, I, I just think it's the best job ever. It's sure it has its challenges. And, um, you know, all of the policies and testing and all the things we've dis- discussed can create challenges. But at the end of the day, it's me and those kids in the room together. And, um, you know, the relationships that I build with them and the experiences that we have together just can't ever be replaced. And I, um, you know, I can't imagine doing anything else. It, I just can't. Um, I, I have a PhD. I could be a principal. You didn't even I talk could, about that. <laughs> I could teach college. And I do, actually, <laughs> I, I do actually, um, you know, ha, I do actually, am a, I'm an adjunct faculty member at a college. But what I do is I am on dissertation committees and I basically teach writing yeah. to doctoral students because that's what I like to do. And so I am just really um, a teacher at heart and I, I really enjoy it. And so for me, um, I, you know, when anybody, when young, a young person says to me, you know, should I go into teaching? And I'm like, well, if you're asking me, I'd say yes, because to me, it's the best job ever. Um, I, I truly do enjoy it. And, um, you know, if, if that's something somebody's considering doing and, and people today say, oh, don't do it, it's not. Just, you know, if that's where your heart is, I say go there. <laughs> well, Mary Crabtree, thank you so much for coming oh. on. I, I think we could probably talk for another hour, but. Oh, yeah. You <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for asking me. This has been really fun. If you appreciate what we're doing here, then please share this show with friends and family. And join me again soon for another episode of Education Hearts and Minds.